The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I woke up today to cold water. Found out my, my hot water heater was not producing hot water, and it was in some kind of a weird standby mode, so I went and hit the reset, so my, I sacrificed so my family could have warm water. Me, I just kind of sponged off, and so you can actually leave here today and say that, yeah, that preacher stinks, right? <laughs> you may have two reasons to say that he stinks, but, but that, that'll for sure be one of them. Um, my name is Shannon Sword. I'm the college and young adults pastor here at TBC. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, it really is my privilege to be here with y'all. Um, I, I am a big fan of stories. I have always loved good stories, good storytelling. Um, I love the movies. I love uh, a number of TV programs. When, when I was a kid, I kind of grew up in this weird phase of television. It was this time when uh, shows in the late 60s and through the 70s were really over the top. They were really campy television at the time. I loved Green Acres, the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, one of my favorites, though... I'd run home and turn on after school, came on at 4.30, was uh, Gilligan's Island. I love Gilligan's Island, right? And, and I love the fact that, uh, the, that one of the things I always knew for sure is that no matter what they did to create a plan to get off the island, that somehow, in the end, Gilligan was going to foil the plan and they would remain on the island, right? You just kind of had to accept that. Matter of fact, they would even write in, like, major stars would have a cameo and they would get them on the island for an episode and then they could get them back off again. But the seven-member crew was always going to be stranded on this island. It's just one of those things, you know? It was just one of the oddities of Gilligan's Island that you just had to accept. Or do you? Because there is this thing that is called a fan theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of this idea, but a a fan theory um, is when the fans get together and they see some of these oddities, some of these like incongruencies in the story that have always bothered them, and they write like a new story arc that, 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 takes, that makes better sense of some of those incongruencies than the original story. And, and once you hear it, you can't look at the original story the same way. Like it, it changes everything. So, spoiler alert, because I know there's a lot of Gilligan's Island fans out there, and what I'm about to share with you is going to change the way you, uh, you watch this show. So here we go. Cover your ears if you don't want to hear the, the fan theory for Gilligan's Island. So the truth is, is that when the ship went down in that fateful storm, that our seven-member crew didn't actually wash up on that beautiful Pacific, you know, beach, that they, uh, that they actually died, right? But they don't know they're dead, right? It's like this, this kind of purgatory, and each of the crew represents one of the seven deadly sins. The skipper is anger. I mean, he was always getting um, angry at Gilligan or at some situation, um, Ginger was lust. Mary Ann was envy. The professor was pride. Thurston Howe III, of course, was greed. His wife was gluttony or slothfulness. And that leaves Gilligan. And Gilligan was always the one figuring out how to keep them on the island. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed that he always wore red. So I'll just say it. Like, like he's the bad guy. He's the devil trying to keep them on this you know, virtual island of purgatory. And, and as you hear it, you realize this is fans poking fun at this stuff. 
But the truth is, you go, wow, that's pretty clever. That, that's, that's, that's pretty clever. I can see what they did there. And, and I can't look at the story the same way. Every time I watch Gilligan's Island, now that's kind of the story that I see unfolding in front of me. By the way, there's a lot of fan theories out there. Y'all can go online and check them out. St. Elsewhere is like the mother of all fan theories. Um, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. You can look that up at another time. Don't do it right now. I always forget we have phones where we can do that right now. I can Google anything right here. But a fan theory really does change the way you look at the original story. And it got me thinking that throughout the church's 2,000 years of history, we've had our share of like oddities, you know? There's a lot of incongruencies that the watching world, I'm sure, looked on and said, what is that about? Two weeks ago, Gary said that at times the church is just a hot mess, right? There's just times where it's just a hot mess. Last week, uh, Dave Tate shared with us and reminded us that the anniversary, the 500-year anniversary of the Great Reformation is coming up uh, at the end of this month. A time, a black eye, a blight, if you will, on the church, a period when, when we were selling God's grace, like selling entrance into the kingdom of God for, for, for cash. And, and those that look on, the critics, they look on and they see these things and they kind of create a story to try to make sense of, uh, of some of this. So whether you call them fan theories or doubter theories or hater theories, that's what oftentimes happens. And the truth is, is once we hear like these alternative story arcs, um, the truth is that it begins to change the way um, it shapes us. It, it begins to change the way we see ourselves, what we expect from the church, what we believe is expected from us. Maybe it, 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 it begins to change the, the way we risk. Am I going to really risk that much with this group of people? How sincerely we worship, how, how deeply and consistently we come together as the body of Christ, how, how seriously we will commit our lives together in biblical community. And that's the danger of these fan theories that are always bouncing around in our head. In the broadest sense, I guess you could say that one theory that the world might have of the church is that churches merely want people to, to get them to come and to give their money so they can build nice buildings so that we can have, you know, fancy coffee bars and great Mother's Day Out programs. I use that one, by the way. I don't think we have a Mother's Day Out program. Um, but, but from a distance, I, I can see how the watching world could, could see that. Another one might be that, that the church is just filled with hypocrites that love to wag their finger at the world while ignoring their own brokenness. And once again, I say, you know, I, I can see some of that and how from a distance it might look that way. Matter of fact, at, at, when you really start thinking about it, there's, there's really a lot of ugliness in the church. And perhaps that's because we're a family. We're a family. And I don't know of any family that doesn't have its share of oddities and, and, and ugliness that's there, right? And some of you who are here maybe for the first time, second time, third time, you're thinking, oh, great. So why in the world do I need another messy family when I have a perfectly good messy family all my own, right? <laughs> I, I get that. But give us a few minutes here. Give us a few minutes. God calls us the household of God. We see that in Ephesians 2.19. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So just as we 
celebrated this morning, this family of ours, we share a common table. We have a common cup, we have a common loaf, we have a common love, we share a common truth, we have a common Lord, and we look forward to a, a common home. We're a family. A buddy of mine that spoke this past weekend, Bobby Pruitt, for our, uh, our college retreat, says it this way. He says that God rescues his children out of the orphanage of the whole world that is broken mankind and places us into his new family, his household, the church. But you guys, this, this family, like we have a different kind of blood that is coursing through our veins. Because for you to be a part of this family, for anyone to be a part of God's family, we've been baptized into the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Holy Spirit is He that animates us and He that unites us and He that allows us to share in this deep and rich koinonia. Koinonia is the English transliteration of, of the Greek word, which is pronounced, by the way, koinonia, hence a transliteration. But it is the transliteration of the Greek word. It appears in the New Testament 19 times and it's first used in Acts 2.42. So we, we translate it fellowship there, but the word is actually koinonia, and it's describing this something new that now characterized these believers right after the church was born, right after Peter stands up and preaches. 3,000 are added to their number that day, and then we, we see that they devoted themselves, is what it says, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to prayer. Like, without being able to really assimilate, no time has gone by, there's, there's been no, no time for much to happen, and yet we see the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and, and, and these guys are now beginning to look like a family. So we commonly translate this, this, this word koinonia, fellowship, which really doesn't help us a whole lot, because the word koinonia and the word fellowship kind of suffer the same fate as the word love, right? When, when a word means everything, then it really doesn't mean anything. And so we have to investigate, so what does this, uh, does this word really mean? I mean, the, the truth is, if you Google koinonia, uh, you'll find all kinds of Christian camps, you'll find devotional Bibles, you'll find um, churches, you find youth groups, you find meeting places, there's all this koinonia out there, and there's all this fellowship that we're having around potlucks and at softball games, and the truth is, this word means something far, far deeper than all that. Watch this video. There was this guy um, that came to my church once, and, and he was a part of a gang. And, uh, and decided to ditch everything and, and follow Jesus, and he got baptized. And after a while, though, he stopped coming to the, the church gatherings. And, and one of my buddies asked him, they go, hey, what, where you been? He, he says, when I got baptized, he goes, I thought that it was going to be like when I got jumped into the gang. He goes, when I got jumped into my gang, he goes, suddenly everyone had my back. We became like a family 24-7. 
He says, so when I got baptized, I thought, this is what's going to happen with the Christians. He goes, I, I didn't know that it was just Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. He goes, I thought it was going to be family. So he goes, I, I just had it wrong in my head. And yet when I heard that, I thought, no, you got it right. We've got it wrong. And, and honestly, it was heartbreaking because I thought, the gangs are a better picture of family than the churches? The gangs are a better picture of the body than, than we are? They're having a fellowship and a sharing that we don't see in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet that's the very thing that Jesus wanted for us. You see, even this mission that we've been sent on, he says, we together were supposed to together proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. This idea of, of, of proclaiming it, I, I can't do that without other people. See, I can talk about Jesus. I can talk about Jesus by myself, but I can't show Jesus to other people. Here's what I mean. I can tell you, Jesus forgives you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus is forgiving. But that's not enough. God says, I want you to show Jesus to the world. So that means I need my brothers and sisters around me. And we offend one another, but we keep forgiving. And then suddenly the world looks on and goes, man, I've never seen that before. You guys just keep forgiving each other. You see, unity is so strange in our world. We live in a time when people are so quick to ditch one another. God says, I want my church to be different. I want this one group of people that are devoted to sharing their lives together, sharing this mission together. When someone offends you, you forgive them. And then suddenly people are seeing the attributes of Christ. They're seeing it in the flesh. It's almost like that. what Jesus did in putting God to flesh so that we could dwell amongst him. He says, now that's the church's responsibility. I want you to love each other so much. And when you do that, they'll actually see God. So koinonia is the visible expression of unity in a world that is filled with distrust of tribalism and of radical individualism. And it really doesn't have a single word that it carries the full spectrum of its meaning in the English lang language. So sometimes uh, it'll be translated as fellowship, as it is in, in uh, Acts 2, where it's describing the nature and the depth and the, and the quality of relationships that we share together in the midst of, of this unity. Other times, as in 2 Corinthians 9, it's, it, the, the word koinonia there is translated contribution. You see, the church of Jerusalem was experiencing persecution, and so there was, there was need, there was poverty going on, and so Paul took up an offering among the churches in Macedonia, and they sent this back to their, to their church. This was their koinonia. This was, this was what they were sharing in together. At other places, Paul translates it with the word share, as he does in Philippians 3, that he wants to share in the sufferings of his Savior. He wants to understand what his Savior um, who his Savior is and what he has done for him. 
So you see all these different ways to translate this word, but the essential element of koinonia is our connection to and our commitment to God and to one another through Christ. And we get a glimpse of this, this koinonia in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. I'll pick it up in verse 15. Jesus is praying for the church, like, like then and all the church that's going to come through the centuries. He says, so, Father, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. They may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved uh, them, even as... You have loved me. So Jesus makes it clear that the church has, is now sharing in the glory, if you will, that the, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit share in. Like, like this, this thing of unity where you have three persons of the Godhead, yet they, they all have perfect unity, perfect submission to one another is a, is a, is a glorious thing. It's a spectacle to behold it's, it's impossible to wrap our minds around how, how in the world. And Jesus says, we are now invited into that. We are now, we've been brought into that. And this is, this is the glory that we share in. And this is to be held up to the world as, as a spectacle. Like, like, I want the world to look at the church and to recognize that what's happening there can only happen because God is a part of it. Like, it can't happen any other way. And I think that that's what, what, uh, what Jesus, part of what Jesus is praying about, part of the reason he leaves us in this, this world, to be that testimony to a watching world. Koinonia is the deep, abiding commitment to one another's good and one another's growth, no matter what it costs me. This past weekend, as I mentioned, we had our retreat. We call it Manuka. And um, we, uh, there's a gal that's a part of our ministry named Taylor. And I'd seen Taylor a couple weeks before the retreat and said, hey, Taylor, you need to go on the retreat with us. Now, Taylor has cerebral palsy. She's in a walker. And, uh, and uh, she just says, Shannon, I, I, there's no way I can do stuff like that. I just, I can't, I, I'd love to, but I, I can't participate in stuff like that. Well, little did Taylor know, but uh, several of her friends were planning a coup because they were going to go out to the retreat center ahead of time and find out, is there a way? Like, can we, can we find a way to get Taylor out here and to take care of her out here? They got together with the, the director and his wife, with Andy and, and Lisa, who are part of this body. And Andy just drove her around wherever he, whenever he could on his golf cart, calling her his girlfriend. And, um, and we had an amazing time. But here's the thing. For those three, and for others among us, 
We had to adjust the weekend. We, we were going to limit the things that we were going to be able to share in and do so that Taylor could fully engage as much as she could to be a part of this body. It was a beautiful picture of, of unity, you guys. It was a beautiful picture of this koinonia that we share in together. In this koinonia, we speak truth to one another. We, uh, we laugh together. We cry together. We hurt together, we, we pray together, we serve together, we, we submit ourselves one to the other, and the toughest of them all, no doubt, as Chan mentioned, is that we have to forgive one another. We have to forgive. There's so many expectations that we all end up having for when we're around people, you know, we just kind of have them. And so we constantly can become let down and hurt, and the need to forgive is always there. And of course, we're going to do that. Because we recognize the great sacrifice our Savior made and the, and the great cost that, that it cost him. We have to forgive. I was reminded that years ago, the church that I, I, I came to faith in, there was a girl there in college named Terry. And Terry was really plugged into this church. She was plugged into the children's ministry, the youth ministry. She loved on the elderly. She, uh, her fingerprints were, were all over the church. And she was very well respected. But Terry had a deadbeat dad. She had a tough, tough dad that in the end had an affair and walked away from his family and, and left them in a really, really hard spot. Terry was going to school in Denton at UNT. She lived in Dallas. She drove an old Datsun B210. Before Nissan, it was Datsun. And, uh, and they weren't prized cars, let me tell you. This thing burned oil. It couldn't be counted on. And several times it had stalled on the highway, leaving her stranded on I-35 at night. And she would call, uh, you know, get to a station and call me and I'd go rescue. And I finally, finally had the nerve to ask the pastor. I just said, Pastor, surely something can be done. I mean, surely something can be done. We, we need to get her into reliable transportation. And he looked at me and he said, Shannon, that's the responsibility of her family. And I said, yes, because we're her family. Yes, I agree with you. And he just shrugged and, and walked off. And to add insult to injury, the fact is that he was also her uncle. And I'm telling you guys, you talk about the story that, that I'm curating inside of my inner man. I mean, I'm, I'm like, this is incongruent. This should not be. We have to forgive. The truth is there should be nothing that's in my power to give that I will not sacrifice for a member of my family, the church, who is in need. There should be nothing that I will not sacrifice for a member of my family the church who is in need. But unfortunately, the gospel of our time, it's, it's become that of, 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 of radical individualism. We, we carry that, this radical individualism right into the church where we believe that the church exists to like fully empower me to be all that I can be. But the true gospel, the true gospel calls me to crucify myself. And all that seeks to boast in me and to take up a new identity, to take up a new identity, be a part of the family of God, where God is demonstrating his power and his love and his grace in this beautiful picture of unity. Most people, 
I've found that the years want to dip their toes into the waters of community to, to, to see whether they like the temperature, you know, whether it's comfortable temperature for me. And I would just say, quit testing the waters of me and dive into, dive into the we. Is it scary? Yeah, it, it is at times. And fundamentally, I think the, the biggest reason it's so scary is because this cannot be done by ourselves. Like apart from the work of God, this, this thing, this koinonia does not exist. If we try to do this apart from the, the, the work of God, all we are is a club. All we are is like an organization. Yeah, we can do that. We can do that in our own power. And maybe at times we do that in our own power. But God calls us into something far richer, something that is a picture of his power of the world. He calls us into his glory. Perhaps one of the toughest things that families have to do is to share uh, in one another's hurts, to share our burdens with one another. You know, those are, those are heavy things to do. But the truth is, when one suffers, we all suffer, just as we prayed earlier for those who have lost a child. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 26 is a picture of the complexity of the body and yet the unity that we share. It says, it says but as, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there's one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow even greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, then all rejoice together. One thing I know about everyone in this room, without exception, is that you will not have an easy life. And that needs to be said, because I think sometimes we come together and we look across the way and we see somebody and we go, they've got it easy. They don't have my life. They've got it so easy. And maybe some of us like to come here and to kind of manage the image that others are going to see because that really scares us to death to let anybody see that we don't have it together. And so we perpetuate this sense that everybody's got this easy life or that some people have this easy life and some don't. But I can tell you, without exception, every person in here, if you are a part of the family of God, if you are a child of God, you are going to have your share of heartache and disappointment and adversity and pain. It's going to happen. Jesus says that in this life, we are going to have much trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we come together and, and we, we share in a conversation together and we're, we're surprised as I have the courage to share a little bit of a burden that I'm carrying and then you share a little bit of a burden that you're carrying and suddenly like this ligament forms between these two pieces of the body, right? 
And we begin to, to actually move somewhere. We, we begin to be mobile and animated to do different things. And every time we see one another, we recognize that connection. Can you imagine? I mean, think about this for a minute. Just, just think about this in your mind. Imagine God's family. This family, this church, composed of all ages, all races, all colors, all circumstances, rich, poor, city, rural, white collar, blue collar, etc., all having the courage to take off our masks, to be honest with one another, to be real with one another. How compelling of a message would that be, not only to the body of Christ, but to the watching world around us? I can tell you guys, we, we wouldn't be able to build a building big enough. People would be knocking down the doors to be a part of that. No doubt about it. In Pixar's movie, Inside Out, Riley is this young girl, and she's in the midst of puberty, and, um, and she's being forced to move with her family from an environment where she's successful and comfortable and out in the country, and to move into the city where she is, it's unfamiliar to her, to her, and everything she tries, she seems to fail at. And most of the story is really happening on the inside of Riley's head where each of her emotions is a different character. There's, there's joy, there's fear, anger, disgust, and of course there's sadness. And as Riley's real life is unraveling on the outside, every one of these characters is doing whatever they can to try to stabilize Riley's life on the inside. Joy is the optimist of the bunch, right? She just knows that she knows what to do in this situation, right? We're going to fix this. We're going we're to make it right. And, she, and, and for sure she knows there is no place for sadness. Sadness, just, just, just don't touch anything. Just don't touch anything, right? And when we, we come to the place in the story where we are convinced that there is no saving Riley from complete emotional collapse, when everything has been tried, finally, finally, sadness engages Riley. And Riley has this long, cathartic cry where she's given space, where she's given space to, to grieve what's lost and what's broken in her life. Sadness forms, if you will, this bridge back to a place of health and of hope for Riley. And sadness, sadness becomes the hero of the story. Everyone was convinced they knew what Riley needed, right? But they were all wrong. You see, Riley's world was broken. Riley's world was broken. It required something far more real, far more honest, far more committed. And only sadness could truly provide a way out of the brokenness and back into hope. And I tell you guys, we don't like to make space for, for sadness in our lives. But our world is broken. And that needs to sink in. Every time we turn on the news or pick up a paper or open up our phone, we see something else that has happened in the world around us. Our world is broken. And that's hard. And, and I think one of the great incongruencies of the church is that while we share this common cup and a common lo- loaf and a common Lord, we rarely offer that to those around us, those who are hurting. And, and one reason may be it's because we've never felt that hungry or thirsty 
for righteousness in our own life, right? Like, like we don't see ourselves really as all that broken. We, this, this, this idea of coming to church is kind of this abstract liturgy that others need, but the truth is, I, I just, I, I'm, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And so we find ourselves comparing and, and judging and justifying and, 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 and we refuse to enter into the burdens and the hurt and the brokenness of others. Jesus said, though, that, that to he who has been forgiven much will love much. And he who has been forgiven little loves little. One of the most compelling aspects of the church is that we are a place, we are a people where we can be real, where we can be honest, where we can grieve what is lost and embrace, enjoy um, what's being made right, what's being made new and good. And we do that best, we do that best with others around us who are also working that out in their life. So I'd be amiss if I didn't make this practical, so let me seek to do that. My question for you is this. Are you a part of this great family? What group of people here at TBC have you committed to meet with regularly and to do life with regularly? One of the primary roles of of pastors and elders uh, is to prayerfully consider how we can structure relationships in the body to best facilitate um, maturity, to best facilitate discipleship. Worship is one of, the, one of those environments. This is like the big front door through which almost everyone will come, and it's an important part of who we are, of who the family of God is. And at CBC, we are committed here to, to worship and praise our great God, to, to cast vision and, and, to, and to equip the body, to build up the body for works of service. But I know this, that oftentimes that building up, the best building up, is not going to happen like right now while, while there's preaching and teaching going on. Oftentimes the best building up happens in a living room, in a dorm room, throughout the week where two or more are gathered together and a Riley is led back to wholeness because someone in God's family understood that this, this man of sorrows, Jesus, loves them, understands them, has provided life for them through his death. So is there a living room or a dorm room where you are regularly meeting together in a small group? Family, the truth is that... Uh, Jesus is calling us out of the radical individualism of me and into his glory, into genuine koinonia, where we find life in in we, not me. The gospel life is only found through death. So we die to self and we live to God and through God and his people. I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was called the, uh, the Mysterious Stranding of Whales. And I didn't know this, but, uh, but there have been all these situations where we have seen like groups of whales um, that have washed up on shores and they're stranded there uh, and then they die really a slow and, and painful death. 
And, and one such stranding just happened in, uh, in New Zealand. 600 whales all had washed up on the beaches there. And, uh, and of course, the experts you know, are left scratching their heads. I mean, maybe a few whales would be a mystery, but, but 600 whales, what's going on? Well, they've speculated um, that it is this. Whales are deeply communal creatures. I mean, they are deeply communal creatures. They will not abandon one another. They swim together in their pods or their family throughout their entire life, and they learn to look out for one another. But every now and then, one will become sick or hurt or disoriented and and make its way into treacherous waters where there's not going to be a way out. And you know what this... This family of whales does, they will not abandon it. Like they, they stay with this one all the way to their own death. Aren't you glad we're smarter than a whale? Let's pray. Father, this idea of being willing to die to ourselves to be used by you in the family of God, to connect well in unity to others can only be done because of the Spirit's work in our life. Father, I pray we would have the courage to lean into the Spirit. We'd have the courage to take off masks, to be be willing to meet people where they're at, to love them where they are at, to to know the, the great debt that has been forgiven us so that we have so much ability to love those around us. Father, I pray that our grace would increase. Pray that our love would increase. I pray, Father, that we would be known as the family of God here at Simple Bible Church that graciously loves the world around us. It is a picture of you to the watching world. Name your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, you guys. You're dismissed.